Welcome to Hall Render's Practical Solutions Podcast, featuring thoughtful analysis and insightful commentary on the legal issues facing the healthcare industry. I'm Alyssa James, an attorney with Hall Render, the largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country, and today my colleague Joe Wolf and I will be discussing the explanatory guidance that was recently issued by CMS in order to clarify certain aspects of the COVID-19 Stark Blanket Waivers and discuss how providers can respond to the waivers and the explanatory guidance in order to better modify their relationships with their physicians if they so desire. So on April 21st, CMS issued explanatory guidance to further clarify and elaborate on its intent when it issued the Stark Blanket Waivers that we discussed in an earlier podcast several weeks ago. Those waivers were issued at the end of March in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, Um, But before we dive into our discussion today about the details of the explanatory guidance and other recommendations for providers, Joe is first going to give us a quick recap of the Stark waivers and the types of situations in which they may be relied upon in order to kind of set the stage for our discussion today. Yeah, thanks, Alyssa, and and thanks to everyone listening to today's podcast. And Alyssa and I have been uh, working through this kind of analysis around the Stark waivers for hospitals and health systems nationwide uh, as they react and and continue with their physician contracting and and fraud and abuse and related compliance issues. And on top of that, we've also been working with healthcare organizations to help develop documentation supporting reliance on these uh, on these waivers. And as Alyssa hit on already, these waivers were initially issued back on March 30th, uh, were made retroactive to March 1st. So they do cover uh, any activities that fall within their scope going back to that March 1st uh, timeframe. And I think providers were happy to see that, that retroactivity. Uh, they're set to expire at the end of the declared public health emergency period. And so that tells us a bit about our, our time frame we're talking about going back to March 1st uh, through the end of the uh, national emergency. Uh, this recent guidance that was issued on April 21st uh, spoke a, a lot about the, the importance of timing. Um, essentially the government said that if you're going to rely on these waivers the amounts you're paying uh, should be made within the waiver period. And I think more than anything, that means that healthcare organizations need to do their analysis and and need to move quickly. Um, And that's because any payments or disbursements, um, whether it's in the form of a a loan proceed or additional payments for services or space or equipment or other items uh, that occur after the termination of the waivers, are going likely going to have to meet the requirements of, of an actual Stark exception. Um, and for many of our clients, we've always recommended that they try to meet a, a Stark exception. But if they're going to um, try to rely on these waivers for potentially more uh, aggressive compensation terms, or if they're looking to um, pay above previously contracted rates, uh, they might still want to look uh, to these waivers. Uh, there could be some room for analysis here if some obligations are going to fall after that waiver period. Uh, the government gave an example of loan repayments that were agreed to prior to the termination uh, still being okay if, if they fell after the termination of the waivers without being problematic. 
Uh, that example seemed to be um, where, where you would have a, a repayment of an obligation falling after the termination rather than a new disbursement. Uh, and that may open up the opportunity for reconciliation type payments or capture payments after the waiver period. However, again, those new disbursements of money likely will need to be analyzed uh, more carefully um, and you may need to look to uh, existing exceptions. And I think the bottom line here is for healthcare organizations that are listening to this podcast, uh, if you're going to rely on a waiver, you should do the analysis. Uh, if you have an arrangement that may not fit squarely within an existing exception, uh, you may want to take steps now um, to address questions, um, to try to understand whether you could pursue a waivered arrangement. Uh, now you'd want to get contemporaneous documentation in place. Uh, the government has said that you should be ready to produce that documentation uh, if the government asks for it. So you should be taking those steps now. I think all of that will help uh, and, and help reduce future headaches. Um, the, the government has said it would work with the Department of Justice to address False Claims Act relator suits or whistleblower suits uh, after the fact here where parties have acted um, in with a good faith belief that they're falling under the waivers. And that's where this really fits into the overall compliance part. If, you, if you're going to take actions now, if you line up reliance on the waivers and you have a good faith uh, reliance on those waivers, it could uh, uh, help you avoid uh, future whistleblower suits or um, hopefully the government would step in to um, move towards a dismissal if there is a future um, whistleblower suit. Uh, the waivers themselves, as we hit on in the earlier podcast, they're not just a free pass. Uh, if you're going to use them, you should identify a COVID-19 purpose. Uh, you sh and there were six of them identified um, in the waiver documents. Um, second, you should fit within one of the Stark waivers. There was were 18 of them identified in the first go-round. Um, and then you should develop the documentation supporting the use of those waivers uh, for those first six COVID-19 purposes, they, they fell in a, in a number of different categories. Um, you know, the first focused on diagnosis or medically necessary treatment of COVID-19 uh, for patients or individuals. The second focused on securing the services of physicians and healthcare providers to furnish medically necessary services, uh, ensuring the ability of healthcare providers to address patient and community needs expanding capacity of healthcare providers to address patient and community needs, uh, shifting the diagnosis and care of patients to uh, alternative settings of care, and then a final number six, a very broad category that discussed addressing medical practice or business interruption due to the COVID-19 outbreak. And that really gets at the scope of some of these uh, COVID-19 purposes that you should align with um, and as a threshold matter, you should figure out which of those you uh, actually line up with. Um, the new guidance we're here to talk about mostly today discussed some different areas that that likely that did need some clarification around action and timing of relying on these waivers, uh, about amendments to the waivers, uh, the application of the waivers to indirect compensation arrangements, and special issues related to loan. Uh, recruitment and, and professional service agreements. And I, Alyssa and I are going to step through some of that guidance um, uh, in this podcast. So Alyssa, I'll turn it to you to, to start uh, the discussion on some of the explanatory guidance. 
Thanks, Joe. That was a great recap. Um, and I completely agree with the examples that you provided in that discussion thus far. Um, as Joe said, now we're going to kind of walk through some of the explanatory guidance and specific parameters and examples that, that CMS set forth in that. Something that's important to keep in mind as we evaluate the waivers and the corresponding explanatory guidance is that in that recent explanatory guidance, CMS reiterated that financial arrangements um, and relationships with physicians and referrals from physicians must still satisfy all of the non-waived requirements of the applicable Stark exception. Um, because many of the waivers may only waive one or a few components of an applicable Stark law exception, healthcare organizations need to ensure that their arrangements with physicians continue to comply with the remaining non-waived components of those exceptions. So um, it's just important to keep in mind that the waivers are not kind of a broad brush to do whatever you would like in your physician relationships. We need to really, um, as Joe hit on as well, kind of clearly focus on, on what those waived requirements are and then make sure that we're satisfying any other requirements that, of an exception that may not be waived in a particular scenario. CMS also issued guidance on how to amend certain compensation arrangements in light of the waivers, um, if required, for your particular circumstance, um, while still remaining in compliance with Stark. Due to the fact that so many Stark exceptions require that compensation arrangements with physicians be in place for at least one year, um, CMS has received some questions from industry stakeholders in response to their issuance of the blanket waivers regarding the ability to amend a compensation arrangement to account for those COVID-19 adjustments that they may be considering. Um, and then kind of along with that, the ability to potentially amend those arrangements again in order to, for example, revert back to the standard compensation terms that were in place prior to the COVID-19 pandemic adjustments um, and, you know, wanting to make those uh, adjustments back to kind of the standard compensation terms at the end of the public health emergency period. And so in its discussion, you know, CMS reiterated some old guidance from the 2009 IPPS final rule that allows subsequent amendments of compensation terms of arrangements, even if those occur within the first year, um, so long as those modifications are set in advance otherwise comply with the requirements of the Stark exception. For example, they can't take into account volume or value of referrals, of course, and things of that nature. Um, and then the overall arrangement must remain in place for at least one year after the amendment. So therefore, healthcare organizations and providers could amend an arrangement um, to change compensation in light of that organization's response to COVID-19, and then amend the arrangement again at the end of the public health emergency period or any time prior to the end of the public health emergency period if, if they don't desire to continue that modified arrangement throughout the entire declared emergency and revert back to the existing compensation terms. So there is some, CMS has acknowledged there's some flexibility there, not necessarily in conjunction with the waivers, but just in conjunction with kind of their guidance and interpretation of that one-year requirement more broadly. A more practical solution, I think, that we're seeing rather than amending an arrangement to adjust for COVID-19 and then amending again, and that we've seen a lot of clients doing, would be to maybe include language in the initial amendment that states that the compensation will revert back to the prior compensation structure 
at the end of the declared public health emergency period, um, if that's your desired time frame. This eliminates the need for two separate writings to document the change and then shift back to the prior fee structure, which just can help streamline things and make it a little more practical for providers and their physicians. We, we typically find that if we can limit the number of signatures that need to be obtained, for example, and the number of documentation, it just sets the parties up for success as far as not having to spend so much time um, preparing documents and signing things and such. So if, if you know at the outset of your COVID-19 adjustments, um, when you're doing that initial amendment, that you're going to want things to revert back um, at the end of the declared public health emergency and not prior to that. Again, they can't continue beyond that, but but within that time period, and, and you're going to want to revert back to what the compensation was prior to COVID-19, um, you could go ahead and include kind of that that structure in the initial amendment and, and potentially alleviate the need to do a subsequent amendment of a few months or, or however long down the road. And now Joe is going to talk us through some of the additional guidance that CMS provided regarding things like indirect compensation arrangements and loan arrangements with physicians. Yeah, thanks, Alyssa. Um, first up, and one question that emerged from the initial uh, Stark Blanket Waiver guidance was, you know, how does this work with respect to uh, indirect arrangements? And uh, for those of you familiar with a Stark analysis, uh, know that an indirect arrangement is triggered uh, if you have an unbroken chain of, of financial arrangements uh, between um, a healthcare organization and a, and a physician. Um, and there is um, a, a more granular analysis around a compensation that, that varies with uh, volume or value of referrals. And uh, if the entity um, has knowledge of the uh, indirect financial relationship, and so as healthcare organizations do the analysis around indirect arrangements, uh, they, they would obviously like to know if, if they can rely on these stark waivers. Uh, the government came out and said that the waivers do not apply to indirect compensation arrangements. Uh, that and that is a practical matter. There there may not even be a need to look to the waivers because um, in in many instances physicians will be deemed if they're owners of a physician organization they'll be deemed to stand in the shoes of their physician organization, or if they're an employed physician, they may be permitted to stand in the shoes of their physician organization. So as a practical matter, uh, many of those arrangements that may be uh, indirect actually would become direct uh, once you look to those, uh, those, those deeming or, or permissive stand in the shoe rules. Um, the government also pointed out that parties have the option to request an individual waiver for their indirect financial arrangements if they have concerns about them fitting within a stark exception and they're unable to rely on the waivers. So again, the government here clarifying that uh, these really are intended, the waivers are intended to uh, protect direct financial arrangements, um, including uh, situations where physicians stand in the shoes. Uh, the, the new um, guidance also spoke uh, to the issue of repayment options for loans between uh, entities and physicians. The government actually gave a significant amount of flexibility, noting that uh, loans do not need to be repaid in cash. Um, and in, in fact, healthcare organizations could look to in-kind repayment um, as long as those in-kind repayments are uh, commercially reasonable. 
Um, and and if, if there are situations where repayments are, are not commercially reasonable, those repayments may not uh, fall within uh, the, the waivers themselves. Uh, the government spoke about the, the need for the aggregate value of any in-kind payments to be consistent with the amount of the loan balance that's being re reduced through those in-kind payments. And so uh, I, I think healthcare organizations that are going to uh, look to in-kind repayments should really do their um, work uh, to make sure that they uh, understand why why the services they're, they're using to reduce that balance line up with, with any reduced payments. There also was some discussion around um, a physician practice remaining in the community to be considered as in-kind services. Uh, CMS did caution that relocation services to a community to establish a practice may be deemed to be a benefit to the community and not to the recruiting hospital. And I think that's an important uh, distinction that we've seen arise in, in prior commentary that you know, if the situation is one where the community is benefiting um, from those in-kind services, it may not be as appropriate to look at that as a, a viable in-kind service that would reduce any, any um, outstanding payments. So again, the government did provide some alternatives here beyond uh, just standard uh, loan repayment. Uh, the government also talked um, uh, about uh, the repayment of loans, uh, some of the timing issues that uh, may arise uh, as we think about the practical usage of these waivers. Um, the, the government talked about um, in this guidance disbursements of remuneration after the termination of the waiver period uh, having to satisfy a, an applicable Stark exception. That's something Alyssa and I have both talked about uh, that if you're going to have disbursements of loans or additional payments for services uh, that are going to extend after the waiver period, you're, it's going to be very challenging to rely on the waivers. And that's why you need to be doing some uh, analysis using the facts and circumstances of your arrangement and really thinking about the timing and whether it's going to be appropriate uh, to continue to rely on, on those waivers. Um, and, and if you're, again, considering these uh, you're going to consider pursuing a waivered arrangement, you should do your review and your analysis and prepare that documentation now uh, before this, the waiver period is, is over. Um, and so really that, that's, a, this is some very helpful government guidance to, speaking to the timing and the ability to rely on the waivers and, and offering up some potential for uh, in-kind services to help reduce what liabilities that are out there. So I'm going to turn things back to uh, Alyssa to uh, step through a, a, a bit more of the guidance and then to close out the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, and that was a great kind of discussion of, of some of the additional guidance and options that providers may have. Um, the last item that CMS addressed in its supplemental explanatory guidance is the concept of whether or not providers could potentially restructure income guarantees and other terms associated with existing physician recruitment arrangements with independent physicians and or physician groups in their communities. As you may be aware, there are um, instances where hospitals will enter into recruitment arrangements to relocate a physician to their service area and community, and that physician may be uh, practicing completely independently or may be employed by another kind of third-party group practice. And so those arrangements can be a great benefit for the community in order to get providers um, 
recruited to that area that may otherwise not have the means to relocate and start up a new practice in a in a service area that may have a needy population there. And so there have been some questions CMS has received regarding whether or not those recruitment arrangements could be modified to to potentially for example, increase the income guarantee associated with that in response to the hospital and the physician practices um, COVID responses. So in this explanatory guidance, CMS reiterated kind of its longstanding position that recruitment arrangements really should not be able to be amended to provide additional or potentially additional compensation to the recruited physician because the purpose of that recruitment arrangement exception under Stark is to permit a physician to relocate to the community. Um, If you're amending a recruitment arrangement, CMS takes the position that that physician is already there, and so they've already relocated their medical practice, and the recruitment arrangement exception is not appropriate then to modify um, compensation terms midway through. That said, CMS did also note that there may be instances where other blanket waivers would be appropriate to assist a physician or physician practice whose practice was experiencing interruption or struggling um, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, providers could consider reduced rental rates to help these physicians or possibly below fair market value loans, those options that Joe described earlier, um, in order to assist the physicians in the community without restructuring their existing recruitment arrangements. So all in all, in this explanatory guidance, CMS has taken some follow-up questions that they've received from industry stakeholders and tried to clarify how how the blanket waivers may or may not be applied to certain arrangements, which I think is helpful for providers and healthcare organizations as they look to utilize the waivers as well as maybe evaluate whether or not the utilization of a waiver is or isn't appropriate for their organization in a particular physician arrangement. We hope that this discussion today has has been helpful and has helped to interpret and discuss this additional guidance provided by CMS. When we're evaluating modifications to various physician arrangements during the pandemic, of course, it's always important to remember uh, to always pursue any compensation modifications or other arrangements with the proper purposes. Um, Joe talked at the beginning about these proper purposes, but it's just always important to kind of keep that in mind with any sort of physician relationship. Also remember to take action now to evaluate, potentially implement, and then also to prepare to wind down any compensation adjustments or modifications or new arrangements that you're entering into um, during this COVID-19 time in order to ensure compliance with the waiver requirements regarding timing. As we've discussed, that timing element is very specific and very important when relying on the waivers. And so to make sure that you're doing what you can now in order to make sure that you comply with those timeframes down the road. Um, And as always, you know, ensure that your organization's strategic goals during this time are in line with the legal and compliance guidance and recommendations that have been issued by CMS Um, and that we've discussed here today, as well as on prior podcasts and articles that we've written in order to ensure that that those strategic goals are in line with the legal requirements and vice versa. Joe, do you have anything else to to add, kind of closing thoughts before we wrap up here today? No, I I guess thanks to everyone for listening to this podcast. Uh, As we've hit on a number of times, uh, the time to act to ensure compliance is now. Uh, we we think that it's important to act within the waiver period. 
and uh, documentation is always more compelling if it's created uh, at the time you are entering into the arrangements. And so we think uh, developing that uh, documentation in writing right now is, is critical, um, whether it's in the form of an amendment or a separate written agreement or some other type of supporting documentation. And we've seen all, all of those approaches. Uh, we, we recommend that you do that now. You may want to capture you know, the parties and the term, uh, the type of the financial arrangement that you're entering into, uh, likely the proper COVID-19 purpose that you're looking to and the applicable waivers you've relied on. And, and uh, Alyssa and I are hoping a, a number of healthcare organizations do that kind of analysis and we're uh, pointing um, healthcare organizations to, to developing best practices and, and making sure you have the tightest record uh, that, that can help you down the road uh, should you ever have to show that to the government or uh, have to um, navigate a, a later compliance issue. And so, again, thanks for listening in. Um, I'll, I'll turn things back to Alyssa to sign off. Thanks, Joe. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics that you heard in today's episode, please feel free to visit our website at hallrender.com or reach out to either Joe or me via email. Um, Joe can be reached at jwolf, which is J-W-O-L-F-E, at hallrender.com, and I can be reached at ajames at hallrender.com. Please remember that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice. Thank you very much for joining us.